if you task the arts sector with how to make messages not about the crisis, but on the shifts in behavior that are necessary on a more meaningful basis. When the pandemic began and we had what, like certain products weren't on the shelves at grocery stores, but there was still lots of stuff. There wasn't, there was, you know, there was shortages, but there wasn't that much shortage. You know, how much would my life really change if half the products in the store were just not here? Right. And half of them didn't come from all over in the world. Like they were just, you know, whatever made sense to have it available here and just having less choice. Like how terrible would that be? I'm like, kind of not. How can we just change behavior on a more holistic level and have it stick? Because that's what we need to do right now. And I think the arts would be a great vehicle to see that those messages really hit hit everybody and make a change. Another episode of the Conscient Podcast. I'm with Clayton Windat, who will introduce himself in just a second. Um, I've known Clayton for a long time. Uh, when I was at Canada Council, he's uh, an advocate for all kinds of art, uh, artistic activities, but he's also a creator and uh, uh, wears many hats. Um, and so I'm really happy to, that you're here, that we can have this conversation. So uh, maybe you can just start uh, and introduce yourself, Clayton, and then we'll take it from there. Uh, hi, my name is Clayton Windat. I am a mixed blood settler Métis person, uh, non-gendered, living here in Sturgeon Falls, Ontario, Nipissing First Nations territory. I am an artist, a curator, and uh, an arts enthusiast that pursues my world uh, from the position of unrest. So that often leads to advocacy or all kinds of arts message making, either through arts practice or through arts policy. Well, I saw the, your website, uh, the subtitle is Make Things Happen. And that's certainly been my experience with you. You're somebody who takes the bull by the horn, so to speak. Um, so let's start with the question I've asked everyone so far in this season, which is about the notion of reality, which is a very broad topic, uh, the relationship to reality and denial, but also just the, how the different worldviews around reality. How, how does that, uh, how do you respond to that, the, the notion of reality? I think it's, um, I think it's really great to um, ask questions that, that aspire big thinking and, and that idea of, of, consciousness like the being aware of um the various things that are impacting us I, I think it's very easy to to deny and that um especially in a world where the majority of our interactions are now all through screens that um it's really easy to think about it as not being it's not having a direct impact on you as an individual so my reality um is trying to think about the world uh, and how we as a generation or many generations alive right now can be making offerings that um, will be benefited by future generations. So the idea that uh, it isn't like, I know that sometimes my, my term usage can become a little conflicting because it, but at the same time, like almost, I know, I don't want to think about things as being broken and how they can be fixed. Obviously, I think that that is a, a reality for some people, but I think about it being, it's not as simple as that. It's as, it's more, how are we working as hard as we can in the hopes that it will be better? And 
that's it's so it isn't as simple as letting yourself off the hook emotionally by saying well i did everything that's fixed and i'm like you don't even know everything how could you assume it's fixed we you know so we have to think about ourselves being like how are we putting in maximum effort ongoing and let other generations down the path decide whether that was enough writer rebecca solnit hope locates itself in the premises that we don't know what will happen and that in the spaciousness of uncertainty is room to act. And what about the notion of ecological grief? It's, it's certainly something that I've experienced bodily. Uh, how do you relate to that? Yeah, I mean, that's um, there's so much there to unpack. Um, I mean, I, I do think about how to contribute towards um, solutions or towards um, making things better as opposed to being part of, um, you know, contributing towards um pollution or or ecological disasters which i think we're in the middle of so many disasters and and it it is a crisis which i i mean that definitely those terms will cause grief but i also think there is a a lot of um how do i say this like denial breeds sort of this idea that we we can't be comfortable and I say we also cannot be comfortable, but you need to be getting, you need to get used to the idea that discomfort is part of life. So the idea that denial was part of a way to be able to be comfortable or to allow you to relax. And I'm like, we were never supposed to relax. (laughs) We were supposed to, um, you know, be stewards of the land, take care of things. Uh, nurture growth. Um, I feel like the idea of, um, I, I don't want to call it laziness, but there is this part of me that thinks that part of the reason why we deny problems or or the wrongdoing of others and try to ignore it is that it it's a lot to take on and it adds stress to our lives. And all of a sudden we're, you know, very distraught over things that we feel we have no control over but that place is a place that many people live all the time and they've come they've become accustomed to being like i know that things are terrible that's why i work this hard 
Well, maybe you could talk a bit about your your art practice and some of your activities in the artistic community. Um, you can start at any point because they're they're probably all interconnected. I would think, Clayton. Oh, I love that. Uh, they are very interconnected. I mean, I, I think I'll start where I am now, which is uh, I'm currently working as the artistic director of ARCA, the Artist-Run Centers and Collectives Conference, which. Um, is a, a national organization dedicated towards the support of artist-run centers and the um, 180 plus arts organizations that uh, identify as artist-run center. And then, you know, if we move back prior to this role, you know, uh, I was working with the, at the time called the Aboriginal Curatorial Collective, now called the Indigenous Curatorial Collective. And before that, you know, worked within the Whitewater Gallery, which was an artist-run center in North Bay, which is close to where I live. And um, that whole time, pursuing my own practice as um, a thinker and, and you know, an artist that uh, goes between many, many genres, uh, specifically performance art and um Curatorial practices, usually, you know, with curating my own work, but sometimes with others or for others. And for me, um, art is the way to get a message across and to, to communicate. So, um, you know, sometimes what I'm communicating may be very personal and, and not quite obvious what I'm trying to say. Other times it's, it's very um, direct and it, it could be, you know, text-based messaging within a video to uh, provoke a response, you know, so it goes across the spectrum. And I think that the arts organizations I've worked with have been, have uh, been sharing in those those message makings, like being like, how can we uh, communicate effectively the needs for change or the supports that uh, people could access to help them uh, have that kind of foundation within their world and then be those instruments of change themselves, right? So there's, there's a lot there, yeah. Well, maybe we could talk a bit about art and climate change because that's a topic that uh, I've been exploring. But in fact, it's art and the larger ecological crisis that's the real topic. And if you want to go even broader, it's you know some of the systems that we've built that are uh, destructive. So, uh, what what, what um, have you done in terms of art practice, uh, and and also more broadly, where do you think needs to be done by the artistic community as a whole? It's that's such a, a great uh, and expansive question. I mean, I, I think like I'll, so I'll try to start with the way you presented it, like with my own work and the um, there there are things that are simple, like saying I'm going to make something as an artist. I'm going to go and fabricate something. And, you know, there's small ways of saying, well, I'm, I'm just not going to use materials that I know are detrimental. And that's that's a very minor self choice, but it's, it is something that I think has directed my practice. I mean, like I years ago used to work heavily with uh, like urethane rubbers and plastics and make toys. And this was like an obsession. I loved this, but I just couldn't produce things and feel like this is just going to be in a landfill and this is just going to you know, be thrown away or I'm just creating uh, more consumption. Right. So how do you, how do you respond to that conflict of like loving something and, but then also feeling like it's, it's just part of this problem. Well, it's like, well, you know, maybe um, putting effort into like saying, I'm going to make, uh, you know, wood-based products and, and not uh, load them with varnish and, and, you know, things that are detrimental and so I'll make them out of raw materials. And then, well, what happens when they get thrown out? I'm like, well, one year later, they're just a pile of dirt that is completely where it came from, right? So, like, there's this idea of, like, we don't have to make things permanent. And 
um, for a while, uh, I pitched different public art commissions. That, you know, as an artist, we respond to these different things. And for the longest time, I had this project where I wanted to make these uh, flower beds that were going to be made entirely out of raw wood. And when you're pitching to a public art commission, um, you know, it's like usually it's like there's a certain level of like permanency, right? This is like something that a community is saying they're going to take on. And it becomes almost like a heritage site, like, you know, like the, they have to maintain it. That's part of the, the structure. So when when you're pitching, saying, I want you to make flower beds out of raw wood, which basically either has to be replaced or maintained very frequently by the community or, you know, five years later, that that is just going to be a, a, a mound of of random and in, locally indigenous wildflowers. <laughs> um that's not really very attractive when people are thinking like, well, how come this isn't made out of concrete and, uh, and Castile or whatever. And I'm like, well, because I don't want to make something permanent. I want to make it that you either love it and you take care of it, or you're not making it a future generations problem. And this, this became how I started adapting my thinking process to be like how temporary, uh, could or would be something that could be permanent but it, it has to have that idea of effort and generational transition in order for it to be cared for in that way. And then flashing forward to today, um, having conversations, you know, with various architecture groups or, or, you know, policymakers, seeing how those discussions are starting to enter into those spaces without my involvement, because other people are thinking those same things of being like, why would I want to create something that uh, future generations just have to deal with? You know, like they should want to deal with it, but we don't know what they want. So how can we make it that we're not locking them into having to deal with this? Instead, it's like they either cherish it and they celebrate it or they decide it's not for them and they're able to move on. And it isn't uh, a massive um, environmental mess. Um, I mean, I think about it as well, like when it comes to like the organizational side and some of the shifts being uh, really like how... Um, you know, gallery culture in general has started looking itself more as uh, like community hub and artist culture of coming together. Like artist run culture is shifting heavily towards sort of like the, the, the more value based um, systems that I think artist run culture was initially started it with within the 70s. Like the idea of it being like a movement that you're part of supporting each other towards shared goals um, and, you know, kind of activating through that community. And I think about it being like, when I think about environmental stewardship, there's more projects that I'm watching coming out of artist-run culture in regards to that than maybe um, uh, maybe exhibitions that are, you know, directly responding to climate crisis. You know, like it's one thing to showcase photos of something horrible, but it's another thing to be like, instead of that, we're actually going to go and clean up our own waterfront you know, and be more action driven and, and fixated on it. And I, I'm not trying to say one is better than the other, but I am seeing much more movement within these structures in that way of being like um, less subject driven and more uh, personally accountable and community driven. Yeah. And more of a, a process of engagement on the long term, as opposed to a, a one off, you know, these are my feelings about something, but this is my actual uh, commitment to the to the to the issue, which is a permanent issue, unfortunately, because of what we've done to ourselves. Well, and, and it's it's that idea of it. It can't be 
uh, transactional the way I was saying earlier. Like it's not broken and then fixed. It's relational, which means that, you know, whatever effort you're doing, we have to then what circle back and continue to maintain that relationship. Like, so if, you know, you want the waterfront to be clean, you know, we go and we volunteer at the waterfront, but you don't do it one day and then pat yourself on the back and say, done. You have to go back a couple of weeks later and check again, and you have to keep maintaining this this whole level and only through that effort on a bigger community level do we see other people really start buying into it i think that that idea of checking a box lets so many people off the hook and uh, i i think specifically about a um <laughs> a long time ago a friend of mine went on one of those rants about earth day and they were like you know you have to turn off your light at this time of night and and you know everyone's gonna have their light off it's a symbolic gesture and they didn't turn their light off and you know they're a little older and a little grumpier but when the people of the neighborhood came to kind of lecture them they're like i have my lights on from seven until nine only at all ever i watch you all leaving your lights on all the time outside your house all night on this whole block i am not interested in you lecturing me <laughs> earth day that's great, but I practice Earth Day every day. And I don't need to practice Earth Day because you need you're the ones that need this simple gesture to make yourselves feel better. Well, Clayton, you're yes, and and sometimes the 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 criticality of a look at at a a, a, a one-off as opposed to to uh, and this is where the arts are really interesting, right? Because artists have been working on these issues forever, right? They they're always raising social issues and awareness. But we're at a phase now where we're beyond the sort of awareness phase. We're into the we need to act very quickly and effectively. And so what I'm seeing uh, is uh, artists organizing themselves. Uh, some panicking, which is not good. Others underinformed, which is also not good, but all those things can be corrected uh, by by not only leadership but solidarity. It's like we're all in this together. Uh, there are there are some paths forward for future generations, and and let's get on with it. Uh, you know, let's make things happen, as as you would say. What about the the arts? Like, what are some of the barriers now in the in the arts community? I mean, it might be funding, it might be uh, systems, you know. But I mean, for those artists who want to uh, get more involved, and then eventually, I think everyone's going to have to be involved because of the nature of the crisis. Uh, what are some of the barriers and opportunities for the arts and cultural sector? Well, I mean, the there's 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 lots. Some of them are um, self-imposed barriers. I mean. Um, the competitive nature of art systems in Canada um, make it that we are constantly sort of um, increasing the scope of our own actions to remain competitive. And it, it, there's that idea of being uh, applying for things and having to secure funding makes it that there's there's sort of a, a constant amount of sort of negotiating. It's not like this is, you know, you don't hear places say, well, these are our two staff and we don't ever need anything more than this. They're always sort of this fluctuation. And I mean, there's a few exceptions, but 
but that idea of um, competitive nature sort of uh, breeds unrest. And, and I say unrest, I'm not upset about unrest, but I am upset by the idea that they're constantly pursuing the rationalization of their own existence instead of having time to be able to think about uh, all these other things that they should be thinking about. Right. So there's a bit of um, uh, like a, like a, uh, an organizational climate of sort of crisis. And, and I think that even when the Canada council for the arts uh, doubled their funding budgets, and, you know, said things like, you know, I want to hear how you would use increases to stabilize staff, secure your operations. Uh, I'm, I could almost guarantee that a large majority of applications came in saying how much more they were going to do with the money, because that's the climate we're in. Like this environment of of competition kind of makes you nervous that even if everyone else says, no, no, we're just going to stabilize ourselves they don't trust each other enough to actually be the one who says, well, I'm just going to take more money to stabilize because they think everyone else is going to say, well, actually I'll do double what they do, <laughs> you know, and, and they'll be the, it, it has that feel, right? So, so there's the lack of stability for their, their ongoing infrastructure um, is kind of keeps it precarious. Right. And I think that when I talk about precarity, there's lots of uh, advocates out there, especially within the basic income movement that are, that use that term very often about the arts, um, but going more to um, the the barriers for the art sector in general, uh, like I, I think about it being how those spaces just having certain things kind of taken off the table to, to worry about uh, would allow them to start making more um, holistic community offerings, like maybe not global offerings, but at the same time, like these are, rally points for people who are very deep thinkers like the you know and the the idea that uh the arts sector in general uh you know should be compartmentalized away from like larger uh global issues i'm like i, I don't agree with that at all i was extremely happy to see the new uh minister of canadian heritage bringing um their environmental uh, issues and like the idea of environmentalism and, and land stewardship into Canadian heritage and start talking about it. It, I know that there are some that was, that were like maybe um, off put saying, I don't know why they, that would be talked about there, but I absolutely agreed with it being talked about there. The cultural uh, sector, like the arts sector is probably the place where the most, um, critical discourse in relation to subjects can happen in a uh, non-aggressive, non-violent way. The idea that they're really uh, critical subjects can be explored and shared within the public. Um, you know, like that's one of the few places where that can happen without it leading to like, um, you know, pointing and yelling and shoving desks and all that kind of stuff. Like we can have huge differences of opinions that um, result in, in, in being able to have the, the people witnessing it understand and maybe even just have consensus they don't have to be on one side or the other but they can understand both sides of it like that's that's what i think the arts can do like that power of the arts idea but um going into like the idea of um what they can do in the arts and the barriers i mean like i think about how if you task the art sector with how to make Messages not about the crisis, but on the shifts in behavior that are necessary on a more meaningful basis, right? So the idea of like um, when the pandemic began and we had what, like, you know, 
certain products weren't on the shelves at grocery stores, right? But there was still lots of stuff. There wasn't, there was, you know, there was shortages, but there wasn't that much shortage. And I thought about it going, you know, how much would my life really change if half the products in the store were just not here? Right. And half of them didn't come from all over in the world. Like they were just, you know, whatever made sense to have it available here and just having less choice. Like how terrible would that be? I'm like, kind of not. But how, what would be the larger outcome? I'm like, well, you'd have radically less uh, waste from, you know, products that are put on the shelves and are purchased that are later thrown out. Uh, you'd have you know, radically less carbon because, you know, we're shipping half of the amount of things all over the world. And, um, you know, maybe these are the kind of conversations where similar to um, more advocacy specific messages saying, you know, you should eat less fish because of the fishing industry's problem, uh, like, like causing all these plastics in the ocean and this these other initiatives of like, you know, animal rights. Um, you know, that's a very specific message, but maybe there's things where it's like, well, maybe we should just be focusing on consuming less. <laughs> and and I know that that's hard for governments to do, but, you know, scaling things down, if they look at it in a way of uh, planned scale backs, you know, they don't have to be thinking about, um, oh, yeah, it'll result in massive layoffs and there'll be so much less, there'll be less money. So you'll be hiring less people and they'll need less. You'll just have smaller. It's not worse. It's it's actually possibly the only way that we'll survive. <laughs> but the quality of life can be excellent in terms of human relations and culture and uh, local uh, ecologies that are uh, rewilded and re 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 regenerated. There, there's There's lots there that we... Uh, depending on where you live, but everywhere, everywhere where someone lives, there's the potential to enrich the life in in those ways without growth. Well, and and like thinking about the quality of life and the standard of living, and the these kind of terms that are like the definition of like standards of how people can have like you know some form of prosperity and and existence. I almost feel like the um, recontextualization of those standards into a term like that would be you know, saying like what, what neo cohabitation looks like, <laughs> like whatever that is. Um, I think it could be very valuable because um, just that idea of the shift of terms and what they're supposed to mean, allow bigger narratives to be built. And, you know, there's so many people trying to just um, make their homes more livable and less uh, cluttered piles of things. And, you know, the idea of what life looks like, um, I think is changing. I think that as much as the pandemic has been absolutely horrible and a massive amount of losses, um, a crisis of this scope has made it that certain things cannot be denied anymore. We So we, we there's just too much put directly in front of people that is forcing them to address certain aspects of life. That's um, hopefully going to become something that... Uh, we can build upon to be like so now that everyone you know realizes that um they don't have to get on a plane and fly all over the world in order to go to meetings maybe um there'll be less flights you know we'll travel when it's uh, really important for us but i i don't I, I you know in the arts i remember 
on an average, uh, when I was very busy working in within these roles, uh, I would probably go to approximately 10 to 15 conferences a year. And those are, those are flights all over the country all the time. Moving forward, I would be surprised if I went to one a year, you know, in person, maybe one, but I just don't feel the impulse to travel at that level. And I think that's a good thing. You know, like I'm happy with that as an outcome of all this, even though, again, the loss is unbearable. Yeah, well, there's there's a crisis is is a moment to reflect or not. In this case, it is because of the nature of the crisis, but it's a crisis that's leading to other crises that will uh, be larger, uh, unfortunately. But uh, I appreciate your thoughts on all of this, Clayton. And I wanted to, to maybe end with a, a bit of a discussion about Indigenous uh, arts and culture and how Indigenous arts communities uh, relate to the notion of the climate crisis because I, I assume there's a, a different worldview there. Oh, there's there's absolutely many worldviews there. I mean, every Indigenous uh, community, you know, has their own um, their own cultures and customs, and at times, you know, languages and you know, varying viewpoints, uh, which is also why it's been so hard over the last, you know. Um, uh, few decades where you know one person will say oh well, this this band's actually in favor of this pipeline and i'm like well what does that have to do with anything you know like that's like saying one mayor is in charge of or is in favor of a pipeline but another one isn't like like that doesn't that one mayor doesn't speak on behalf of all the mayors um so like that those comments always come across as strange but it's really more been um the realization at how little uh many people even understand about various indigenous groups and, and how different each of them can be. I mean, I think about how um, land stewardship has become um, more and more um, talked about, especially in regards to, um, you know, urban planning and, and relationships with indigenous nations are becoming more than uh, the token um, consultations that I think have happened in the past. And I say token, meaning, you know, I, I don't, I've never had any firm, definition of what indigenous consultation means so there's a part of me that that you know you watch a, a group come in say this is to talk about this environmental issue happening to your region and this is a consultation and you go okay well we don't want you to do what you're doing because we don't we actually care about this place and they say oh well we've heard you thank you and that was the consultation and they move forward they don't have to hear you say no and that really bothers me. Like the consultation should be, you know, you have to convince us to say yes, <laughs> right? Like it's not like it's not just talking and then that's it. Like what what's the point then? It's just lip service, you know? So uh, seeing the things like land stewardship and, and more meaningful relationships go um, to places that are, uh, about accountability in a, in a bigger sense than, you know, one handshake or one photo op that that's really gives me a lot of hope. Um, and you know, I, I am upset to say that I only see that once in a while. It, it's not the norm, but you know, I'm going to try to stay optimistic <laughs> and I'm going to say, you know, the times that I see it, the people that get enthusiastic towards the idea of people working alongside each other and making it make sense and, and making it work in a mutual benefit for both sides of those, of the, the two communities or the many communities that we're talking about. Um, you know, hopefully that, that gets more and more and more commonplace at which point, um, 
you know, whatever terms or whatever new uh, ways that that takes shape. Because, you know, I think that um, although obviously everybody's been living together for generations, uh, it's I can't remember who said this. I want to say that I want to say who originally quoted it, but I remember it was J.P. Longboat who actually said it in front of me but uh i just can't remember who jp was quoting but but they they said you know it's uh, been seven generations of this so you want to know how things are going well why don't you try doing better for seven generations and then ask me <laughs> you know like it's it's got to be that way well in the reality podcast i i tell the story uh about how uh and a representative from an indigenous organization was talking about that it would take as long to fix or to ch- to change uh back or to change to to healthy environment the, the damage that has been done that it would likely take as long to resolve the ecological crisis as it did to create it now i played this back in my mind take as long to resolve the ecological crisis as it did or as it does to create it. How is this possible? And then I said, but but we don't have that kind of time. Or do we? We all looked at each other in silence and and the notion of time is relative right because uh we 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 have to do everything we can but we have to do it well we have to do it with with every bit of integrity that we have and we have to change we have to re-educate ourselves that's what i'm trying to do with this podcast re-educate myself and those who are interested and so i you know I, i i've been listening to you for years because you i think you're a truth speaker you know, you never hesitate to say what you think is needs to be heard, uh, and so I appreciate that. And and uh, I hope you continue to speak, you know, in that way because it's very uh, it's very much appreciated. Well, thank you. And um, one thing I'll I'll say is that in that same way of sort of unlearning things right now, um, there there's always discussions about you know like the difference between a group being autonomous over beside you know, a government or, or, you know, an organization, and then the difference between having them work within it. And one, you know, and it's, it's a conversation about, you know, whether assimilation is happening. And uh, so like right now, when we say like, you know, what are the big changes, you know, I'm not expecting the government of Canada, uh, you know, maybe even within my lifetime to start talking about how they are going to be um, uh, co-leading this landmass with indigenous peoples, how like leadership, would be shared at that capacity. But I do think that the conversations we have now could open the next generation to those things. And that's really that again, like I I really get optimistic and hope that that's what comes next. Journalist Richard Heinberg. Hope is not just an expectation of better times. It is an active attitude a determination to achieve the best possible outcome, regardless of the challenges one is facing. Um, so like, especially when I'm thinking about, um, you know, like the structure of, of changing things within uh, the arts, like I, I, you know, like I was, I was about to say how much I think like the, the monitoring of say uh, jobs 
as part as an economic benefit, like a waypoint for the economy. Um, it's 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 like artificially created. So like there's so many jobs that um, the government like creates just as like for not for profit purposes. Like Canada, like and I, I'm not complaining about Canada summer jobs as a training initiative for emerging you know professionals coming into things, but it is 100% funded by government. And it comes at strategic times to boost numbers. So when they say, oh, you know, do you know that, you know, a million jobs were created this month in the province of Ontario? And I'm like, well, of course they were. They're all funded by this initiative. Like that, that's not, those jobs won't be there later. Like it's ridiculous that you're saying that. But, but also like the, the fluctuation and, and kind of meddling of this system to, in order to have this benefit. And then at the same time, as I'm complaining about that, I'm struggling so hard to have different structures within the arts established so that um, the jobs of arts and culture workers can be monitored and be actually identified as an industry so that we stop becoming like little more than a, a bargaining chip during elections. You know, that you know, the value of that sector is, is more tangible beyond the artistic outcomes. And the reasons why I, I say all of these things is that, um, you know, like when the Canada Council had its funding doubled, uh, everyone was like, oh, great. And I'm like, now tell me what that does. Like, does that create jobs? Like, do we even know? Right. Like there's no there's no defined industry here or set group of people that are employed. So there's no, you know, wage benefits or, or salary expectations or sort of like standards of living, you know, like it's just sort of ambiguous and that competition kind of keeps us in that place. But, but like, so this idea of um, imagining uh, places where, you know, having a job isn't the measure of success, the outcomes themselves you know, the arts already focus on those as the measure of success. And even though I am pushing to have that infrastructure there to make it that, you know, uh, advocates could start focusing a little bit more on advocating for specific art or uh, ideas within art and less about how art should or should not even be allowed to happen, which I think that the majority of advocates are actually fighting to have it that they can be at all, not really what they're doing. I would love for it to shift to be like that in general, instead of saying that jobs exist and I'm fighting to have our, our sector identified as a, as an actual sector that it's like, well, actually I'm doing the opposite. I'm having it that all of the having jobs exist, isn't what's valued. The outcomes are. So why are you saying that there's all these people doing this just to, just to do what, just to make plastics that are inevitably going to trade hands 15 times and then be in a landfill and, then you'll pay that same workforce again to go and what try to get them out of the landfill, <laughs> you know, like why are we doing that? Right. But you know, if we were talking about why are you doing these artistic messages, I don't think it would have to be as hard to sell. So maybe I should take my own, uh, my own advice and actually be fighting to have the, uh, economic, uh, the economic benchmarks be changed and instead of fighting to have uh, the arts considered as one of those economic benchmarks. <laughs> no, it's, it's a good point. And I think new economic, economic models are on the horizon. Uh, we don't know exactly which ones will stick, but uh, the old systems are falling apart. They're literally falling apart. And, and so new, new models have to come in that are vastly better for people. 
as opposed to, I mean, I had a conversation with Jennifer Abbott, who's one of the co-directors of um, the corporation film. There, there was in. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. I love that. Film. Yeah. And, and they're really important work, right? They, they uh, identified probably the biggest problem we have, which is that, that these massive corporations are out of control and, and whether you're capitalist or not, you know, there's, there's, there's versions of capitalism that are, uh, you know, conceivably okay, but it's that kind of, 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 of corporate structure that was created a hundred years ago or 150 years ago by a legal. So you have to undo that. And I don't know how you do it. It's actually unimaginable to, to think that that could stop, but it will. But it's becoming like, aside from uh, the, the global pollution levels or the, um, the profiteering that is like out of control, there are more tangible uh, human to human reasons why we are seeing like governments and their inability to respond and regulate these things becoming like more divisive on the, on the ground level. And I say that being like, I've never seen people more, more like um, riled up and have less faith in governments than today. And, you know, like you look at uh, the CRTC, you know, taking, I don't know how long to finally get to the point where they were saying, yes, Netflix is actually a television channel or, or whatever you want to call it to be able to say they're going to tax it and regulate it and that the Canadian content has to be in there. And like, so streaming platforms are now in that. But I mean, it took like seven or eight years for them to get to that point. Did anybody think when they were turning on Netflix and they're flicking through things that it was different? than television and dvr like that's just ridiculous it's just content coming to you in a different format the same with like uber and taxis like no it's not a taxi this is a different thing i'm like don't use corporate and legal loopholes to circumvent the systems of our governments which we put in place to protect us from these exact things like it's unbelievable how much of this is happening on a global level like right now uh, Google and Facebook are in fights with the Australian government in regards to whether or not content that is produced is news on those on those sites because they're social social media in general. But you know they have the same advertising revenue that they've just stripped the entire news sector of. But then they have no accountability of what's happening. So if I posted hate speech in a newspaper. Not only would the newspaper be fined heavily for doing that, I would be charged for that. But if I post hate speech on Facebook, first of all, they may or may not be able to even take it down because they, they have their own ways of doing things. But second, there's no accountability for them that allowing me to do that. I, I can't handle that. That's not healthy for me. Our governments need to be able to regulate these things because that's the people we elected to put in place. Corporations, I didn't vote for any of those people to run that, <laughs> right? Like democracy has to kind of take a step up right now or whatever, you know, that new generation is going to do it for us. Let's end a bit on hope because that it's a word that I've been uh, struggling with because it, it can be a bit glib to say I am hopeful, you know, uh, to be optimistic maybe. But just uh, yesterday I was reading an article by Rebecca Solnit uh, who wrote in The Guardian about uh, how there are actually some things that are changing rapidly. 
uh, you know, decrease in uh, in use of oil and gas and and new technologies. And and you know, new technologies are not going to save the world, but the accumulated efforts of millions of people and system change can create. Uh, you know, we talk about uncertainty, but uncertainty can go both ways, right? It can go negative, it can go positive. And there's something very joyful about thinking about, uh, you know, a positive outcome because it's it's been so dark uh, when you get into the data, you know, and the data is uninterpreted. It's just straight out data from scientists. They're doing their job. They're telling us what's happening. Cultural workers need to interpret that. And, and as you said, create a vision that is, is positive for the future and is, uh, you know, not only livable, because that's not good enough, uh, is is a full life, uh, a complete life. Uh, what does that look like? You know. Well, and, and yeah, I'm very, I'm very. So, like, in the same side of me, constantly saying how I am optimistic and I'm on that side of things. But I mean, the the counter narrative to that is the uh, the the drama, right? Like the the two masks of theater being like comedy and tragedy. And I think that arts are constantly those two narratives, right? Like we all, like I tend to sway towards the proactive, but I also see the value in the tragedy and, and exemplifying the negative because we need to have both those messages in order to be able to choose that path. So there's a part of me that thinks the, um, the discourse in the arts being that, you know, many messages but primarily like, you know, both very positive and showing the pathway, but also showing like, you know, where this could go <laughs> and, and having that, that dark side, I think can, can make clear choices for people about, you know, like why we're not, you know, um, making uh, fast food containers out of styrofoam anymore. And now moving forward, I'm like, how can everything just become uh, a little bit more like, you know, Oh, you're going to go to a restaurant and buy fa- takeout food because you've got the standardized takeout containers that you brought with you <laughs> that are there for life, right? You know, like how can we just change behavior on a more holistic level and have it stick? Because that's what we need to do right now. And I think the arts would be a great vehicle to see that those messages really hit hit everybody and make a change. Thank you very much. We'll talk again. Thank you so much for having me on this show. I'm really, it's, it's an honor. <laughs>